Well, don't you wish you had that kind of talent that you could draw like that? Amen. Take your Bible, if you would, this morning, be finding Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter number one, we begin a brand new series of messages at Hillcrest from this very deep and important letter, often overlooked letter in the New Testament. If you're not sure where Colossians is, find the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, go through the book of Acts, Paul's letter to the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then you'll come to the prison letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and what? And you'll be right there and uh, mark it. Your Bible will eventually just automatically fall open to Colossians because we will be in the study of Colossians until the year 2020, January 1st. We're going to preach every line of the book. It's that important. This will be the first series that I've ever done yeah, throughout the entire letter of Colossians. Uh, I preach from time to time various texts in Colossians. I've used it for illustrative purposes or to make a different point. But I've never preached an entire expository series all the way through Colossians. And uh, that's just epidemic of the fact and, and, and uh, points to the fact that it is not often uh, studied because it's smaller. Its first cousin, Ephesians, tends to get most of the press. In fact, I know Pam's teaching Ephesians. And so you ladies, if you go to Pam's class and come to church on Sunday, you'll have kind of the twin letters of Ephesians and Colossians mastered. Ephesians will focus primarily on the church, the people of God accomplishing the purpose of God throughout the world. Colossians will focus highly on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the preeminence of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the absolute truth, do you believe it, that Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. Somebody say amen this morning. Uh, you'll find that emphasized in no better place throughout the entire Bible than in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, the Lord began to work on me with respect to a study of Colossians when uh, I was over in Leeds, England in the year 2016. I was uh, sitting in a uh, breakfast area in the Holiday Inn that we were staying at over there while we were on mission with a small group from our church there in the central part of England. And it's just where I was in my normal Bible reading. And as I read themes that I had read time and again. I've read, there's no telling how many times I've read Paul's letter to the Colossians. But for some reason, in those important days, as I would get up early and go down to the breakfast area when it first opened ahead of our group to spend some time in the Word, uh, it just jumped off the page like never before. And I felt the Spirit of God speaking to me, you need to share this with your people. I have worked through it a number of times since that time, now three years ago. In fact, I was talking to my son as we were traveling just a few weeks ago. We were talking about what was coming up this fall, and he looked at me, and he said, weren't you working on that up at the cabin right after Whitney got married? And I said, that's right. What a wonderful memory. But I couldn't get to it because I was in the midst of a longer series of messages in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Y'all remember that? Please say amen. I remember, Pastor. And so I had stuff that I was already committed to that the Lord had told me to preach, and uh, we had to work through that. But it's been on the forefront, and now we arrive at it today, and I'm very, very thankful for it. Uh, many times people ask me, how do you determine what it is you're going to preach? And it's just kind of like that right there. The Lord tends to work through what I'm doing and what I'm reading. 
And we do some stuff systematically from time to time. I want to spend some time in the Gospels. I want to do Old Testament. I want to do poetry from the Bible. I want to do prophetic literature. I want to do Paul's letters. And so we have a system so that we're making sure that we preach the whole counsel of God. But most of the time, it just comes as a result of what God is working on me in my own personal devotional life as a follower and as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here on this Labor Day Sunday, we began the journey today and this morning. I simply want us to wade into our series by looking at the introduction of the letter, which is found in the first two verses of the letter to the Colossians. Let's just focus on that as we read it together today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, obviously, when you study any piece of biblical writing, the first question I think that we need to address and the first thing we need to understand is indeed the who question Who's writing this letter? And the answer, of course, is located in the very first word. You don't need a graduate degree to figure that out. What's the first word of Paul's letter to the Colossians? Would you say it out loud? It's Paul. That's right. In fact, uh, this should serve as a reminder that one of the trademarks of ancient writing, ancient correspondence, is that unlike our tradition today of putting a signature at the end of the letter, the custom back then was to identify yourself as a writer at the very beginning of the letter. And so that's what Paul does. He identifies himself right out of the gate, and as he does, he clarifies a few things. As he identifies himself, he identifies several other things that I think are important for all of us to notice and to grasp before we get into the much deeper parts of the letter as a whole. After identifying himself, first of all, the next thing that Paul does is identify his calling. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, it shouldn't surprise most of you that Paul had not always been what we would call an apostle of Jesus Christ. In fact, for most of his life, He had been the exact opposite of an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had been a what? A persecutor of Jesus Christ and those who followed after Jesus Christ. In fact, before Paul was born again and before before Paul came to faith in Jesus Christ, before Paul himself became a disciple of Jesus Christ, he wasn't even known as Paul. He was known as Saul. Saul of Tarsus, just about as conservative a Jew uh, as you could find. In fact, Paul gives a short biographical statement of himself, not here, but uh, in greater detail in his letter to the Philippians, where he says about himself there in Philippians 3, beginning in about verse 5, that he was a circumcised Jew, circumcised on the eighth day, as all good Jewish boys were, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he was a southern Jew, a Jew from the historic southern kingdom, the fighting Benjamites, very proud of that. He goes on to describe himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, 
Uh, as to the law, he says, uh, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And, and so this is a pretty high level uh, statement that he makes about himself. He is an Israelite of Israelites, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He went on like his father before him to become a Pharisee, which is just about as high as you could climb on the ladder of rabbinic Judaism outside of becoming the high priest yourself. And so he's a pretty proud man, blameless, kept the law diligently, very zealous, persecuted those who lived in such a way as to live contrary uh, to the law. He was a great defender of the Jewish faith, persecutor of the Christian sect. And that's who he was, and that's how he defined himself before he met the Lord. But aren't you grateful today that the Lord had other plans for Saul of Tarsus? And the Lord got a hold of his life in a very dramatic way, confronting him one day as he's on one of these zealous missions from Jerusalem to Damascus in Syria for the purpose of rounding up followers of this sect known as the way. And the Lord confronted him there very dramatically. Christ appeared to him in the form of a blazing, dazzling, blinding light. In that day and in the days to come, as Paul went through this incredible experience, Paul or Saul of Tarsus, Saul the persecutor, would eventually become Paul the gospel preacher. And once the church finally came to grips with that and stopped being scared to death of the man, once the church finally recognized the change uh, in Saul, the dramatic change, and accepted him for who God saved him to be, it was from that point that Paul, of course, as you remember from our very lengthy study and the missionary journeys of Paul just a few months ago, that Paul started traveling all over the region then known as Asia, establishing churches, preaching the gospel, reaching the lost, discipling the saved, growing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that here, with some months now and even years having passed, he identifies himself first and foremost, right out of the gate, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, I would challenge you, if you read the introductions to all 13 of Paul's letters, one of the things that you're going to find is that uh, Paul doesn't always begin his letters the exact same way. Uh, he mixes it up quite a bit. A lot of that depends on the purpose uh, behind why he's writing. He writes to the letter of Galatians, for example, and there's a lot of stuff that they've bought into that they shouldn't have, and he just cuts right to the chase. There's not a lot of honey, not a lot of sugar. It's just, I am astounded that you have so quickly fallen from the grace of God. You know what I mean? So he doesn't begin his letters always in the same way. Sometimes, as he does in the letter to the Romans and to the letter to the Philippians, he'll begin by, first of all, identifying himself with a common bond term that establishes him as one with the Christians to whom he's writing. In other words, he'll say, I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And that'll kind of be his way of saying, you know what? I'm just like you. I am a doulos. I'm a bond slave to Jesus Christ. And I can't think of a better thing to be called than as a servant of Jesus Christ. Y'all want to put that on my tombstone? It'll be just fine with me. How do we describe that man? He was a servant 
of Christ Jesus. And sometimes that's what Paul will say. In fact, he'll say that very thing about himself. He just doesn't do it up front here in Colossians. He'll say it down the way in chapter 1 just a little bit, but he'll get around to it because that was an important part of his life. He was called to serve the Christ who came to serve him by giving his life as a ransom for many. Other times, as he begins his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul will uh, begin uh, some of his letters by not using a calling card at all. He'll just simply say, I, Paul, and commits right in uh, to his greeting and then on into the body of the letter itself. But in the majority of cases, in most of the letters that Paul writes, he begins with his primary calling card, his primary calling, which indeed is that of an apostle. That word apostle is important, and the reason that Paul does it is because that's a a, a term of, of great gravity. It's a term that identifies him in one sense, not in a proud kind of way, but in a humble kind of way, as a heavyweight in terms of gospel leadership. It establishes an authority right up front And part of the reason Paul will do that is because oftentimes when he's writing a letter, not only is he writing to commend the church, but he's also writing to correct the church. And so establishing his apostolic credentials right up front is his way of saying, I want you to listen up to everything that you're about to hear read from this letter I've sent by a correspondent. Because everything I say is not coming from me in my own sense of personal feeling. I'm writing under the inspiration of the very Spirit of God as an apostle called and set apart by the will of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's a term of significant authority. Of course, the word itself means one sent on a mission. An apostle is a sent one sent on a very specific mission. It's like an envoy or an ambassador, if you will, somebody that's sent on someone else's behalf to accomplish work for them. And that was the function, of course, of the New Testament apostles. They were called by God, sent by God to accomplish a very particular mission, namely to preach the gospel, to start churches, and to develop disciples so they they could sooner rather than later leave the church to the business of disciples than making disciples themselves. That's what apostolic leadership did back in the early days of the church. They preached the gospel, established churches, trained and equipped disciples to then go and preach the gospel, testify to the loving grace of Jesus Christ, and develop disciples themselves. And every one of the New Testament apostles had two things in common. One, they had all seen the resurrected Christ with their eyes. And uh, there were originally, of course, 12 of those guys. Judas fell away, fell off the scene. And then he was replaced by Matthias, right? That made 12 again. And then Paul comes along and describes himself as an apostle born out of due time, in other words, as an apostle born or made or called or established in an unusual way from the other two. In other words, he had a vision of Christ, 
but not during the earthly ministry of Christ like the others had. They had walked with Jesus. They had been taught by Jesus. They'd been led by Jesus. They had seen Jesus in his passion, and they had seen Jesus in his resurrection from the dead. And they'd spent time during that 40-day period between the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. Those original disciples had spent time with Jesus, and that's what gave them that apostolic authority to then go from Jerusalem, then outward, and preach the gospel in the name of Christ, calling people to be saved and to be transformed through a living, breathing, abiding, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul, of course, was different. He had a different kind of experience with Jesus after he was saved. He spent three years with the Lord Jesus Christ out in the Arabian desert, being tutored by this visionary experience of the resurrected Christ out in Arabia. And so he makes it very clear, just like those guys, I've had a personal encounter with Christ I've spent basically the same amount of time they spent with the Lord Jesus Christ, just in a different kind of way. But my authority as an apostle, as one who has seen the resurrected Christ, been instructed personally by Christ, is no different than any other of the apostles. So he had seen and witnessed the resurrected Christ, which is the first qualification of an apostle. And then he'd been directly called and sent and commissioned by God to do the work, which meant, of course, that the preaching, the teaching, the writing of the apostles was to be taken as absolutely authoritative, as coming directly to the people as if God himself were speaking. You have to remember, these people weren't like us. They didn't have a completed New Testament. Their Bible was the Hebrew Old Testament. The New Testament was still in the process of being compiled and and put together over a period of time. But they didn't have that. What they had was what we call apostolic teaching, authoritative teaching coming directly from those who had seen the Lord, who'd been taught by Christ. And that authoritative teaching is what God used to begin and to grow Christ's followers and to grow gospel-centered churches. It was that critically important teaching that formed the foundation of what we know today as the church. And when it was being delivered, it was as if the very words of God himself were being delivered through these God-called men, which is exactly what we have preserved in our New Testament today. Our New Testament is the teaching of the apostles of the early church. It is apostolic teaching that has come to us over time through the ministry of God-called men who had seen the risen Christ and who had been set apart and sent into the world for this very critical purpose. And for that reason, can I just say as an aside this morning, personally, I don't think it's right for any human being today to call themselves an apostle, though some do. You can call yourself a gospel preacher. You can call yourself a minister. You can call yourself a missionary. Man, I don't care if you call yourself a bishop or an elder. All of those are biblical terms to describe those who lead, oversee, shepherd, and teach the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are no more biblical apostles anymore. They served their purpose, and now they are no more. 
These were men who were called directly by God, audibly by God even. And Paul, as he begins this letter, wants to make sure that the Colossian believers knew that. Because there will be, as you'll find out, some stuff going on in the church. I know you find that hard to believe. That may be the most important thing I say all day. Stuff happens in church. And it always has. So there's always a need for a corrective element. Because some of the craziest things I've ever heard spiritually, I've heard in the church. And so there's always the need for that. And Paul knew it. I'm getting ready to get into some deep water here. And so he's establishing who he is and who God called him to be. And that's important. You know why? Because none of these people, with the exception of maybe two that we know of, had ever laid eyes on the Apostle Paul. They never met him. True or false, Paul established the church at Colossae himself. True or false? False. He may never have even been to Colossae before. He didn't start the church. We think that a guy named Epaphras actually began the church. That's down in verse 7. We'll get to that in coming days, but just notice it this morning. He says to the Colossians, you learned the word of truth from who? Say it out loud. From Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And that's where Paul uses the term servant. And so he does two things in the introduction of this letter. He does identify himself as a servant, saying to them, I am like you. We're all in this together, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also says, I'm also different from you. I've got a calling on my life that none of you have because of God's will for me and God's placement of me. And you need to know that up front as well. Now, Epaphras probably received the gospel as he made a trip over to Ephesus, ostensibly for business purposes. Same thing happened to our friend Philemon, who was also from Colossae, who met the Lord also on a trip to Ephesus, more likely as not. It's only about 100 miles from Colossae to Ephesus, and it was not uncommon for business people to have to make that trip from time to time. And so what we believe is both Epaphras and Philemon were in Ephesus probably at different times, <clears throat> came under the gospel teaching ministry of the apostle Paul, heard the gospel and got saved. And you know what's great about that? Is that Paul himself didn't have to go to Colossae to establish the church. Epaphras was so full of the Holy Spirit so full of Jesus Christ, so radically transformed by the presence of Jesus Christ, he himself went back and he couldn't shut up about Jesus. He just started talking to people about Jesus and before you know it, he had a church started in his house. And that's the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to get full of Jesus and to be so excited about Jesus that we never get over the glory and the marvel of what it means to be saved and we begin to communicate and to testify. We cannot help to see and to testify as to what the Lord has done for us. Sadly, so many of us get saved and then we get over it, which is the worst thing that can happen. You fall into complacency spiritually. You become a cultural Christian, a status quo Christian. Christianity is something that we do because that's the way we've been trained. 
and you've lost your fire. Thank God Epaphras was moved by the fire of the Spirit of God. And he went and he talked and people came to Jesus Christ. So that's how the church got started. But then over time, things began to get challenging. And we'll see what some of those challenges were as we move along. And so there comes a time where Paul, as a, an apostle, needs to write to the church to address some of these issues. And as he does, the first thing that he does is identify his primary calling. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And that's his way of letting them know, I'm getting ready to say some stuff that will matter and the things I say will carry the full weight of heaven itself behind it. So listen up and let God's spirit change your heart. Everybody still tracking with me, would you say amen? Paul identifies himself. Paul identifies his calling. Next, Paul identifies his partner. And I particularly love this because it teaches me that Paul's not just about Paul. Can I have an amen? Right? Paul's not about getting the glory. He wants to share the credit. And I think it was Ronald Reagan who said one time, how much could we all accomplish if none of us cared a lick about who got the credit? I mean, we could change the world. And part of the reason why we don't change the world is because so many people are wrapped up in themselves. But Paul wasn't. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and, say it out loud, Timothy, our brother. Now, most of you have heard about Timothy. Timothy, of course, is so important. He has one of the books of the Bible named after him because he was the recipient of not one but two letters by the Apostle Paul. Timothy was from Lystra in Galatia. And since you all always remember every word of everything your pastor preaches, you will remember that we first met Timothy back when we got Paul started on his second missionary journey. Paul, of course, started his second and third missionary journeys basically retracing his steps, going back through the churches of South Galatia. And one of those stops that he made at the beginning of his second missionary journey was to Lystra. And of course, now they're without John Mark as kind of a young apprentice traveling partner because Mark had left and, and gone back. And so they pick up Timothy. Paul's impressed by Timothy. Timothy has um, a mixed family heritage. One of his parents was Jewish, the other Gentile. His father was Gentile, his mother was Jewish. Um, and so that's how he's ended up with a Greek name because his father was Greek. But he's a man of tremendous promise. In fact, Timothy's gonna later become the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Ephesus, for crying out loud. One of the most important, I'm sure it was a Baptist church. Can somebody say Amen. Somebody back me up on that. It's in the Bible somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but he would end up staying, Timothy would, as a young pastor. And that's part of the reason why Paul wrote First and Second Timothy, because he didn't know how to do everything. He hadn't graduated from Southwestern Seminary. He hadn't been trained. And he's just kind of having to learn it on the go. 
So he's a man of tremendous promise, but he is with Paul. Paul, of course, is in prison when he's writing this. He's in his first Roman imprisonment. And Timothy is with him as an associate. We don't know how he functions. It's interesting that the letter, I mean, if we read it right off the page, we, if we were to ask who's the author, we would have to say Paul and Timothy because that's what it says. Paul and Timothy are brother. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that Timothy actually wrote part of the letter? Does it mean that Paul is using Timothy as a scribe? Is Paul dictating his letters and using Timothy as an amanuensis to just take down everything that he's saying? That was probably the case. That was customary of Paul. So Timothy probably is doing that, but that's not to say that certainly along the way, Paul and Timothy didn't dialogue a lot about the matters that are discussed here. And that's not to say that Timothy probably didn't have some kind of contribution even to what went into the letter. The Spirit of God is guiding everything that ends up as the letter to the Colossians. But Paul is quick, and I think it's worth noting that Paul is quick to go out of the way, probably to identify Timothy in a way that doesn't just indicate, oh, by the way, Timothy's with me, and hey, y'all, Timothy says, hey. That's probably not what he's doing. Timothy's probably a contributor in some way, maybe in a very small way, but he's there with Paul. And it's interesting to me that Paul goes out of his way to mention him by name which I think is great. And so Paul is very concerned about those people knowing one thing very important, and that is that the ministry of the gospel of Christ is a team game. It's a team game. The ministry is larger than any one person. It's larger than any small group of people. The thing that you should remember is that God has called all of us to do ministry together. Ministry is a heavy load. You know that. Particularly as the world becomes more secular and more hostile to the things of the gospel. No one person, no small group of people are able to carry the burdens of ministry or to conduct the tasks of ministry alone. And they made a great team. Paul was a little older. Timothy was a little younger. There's room for seniors. There's room for young people. They had different level of experiences. They had different levels of maturity. They had different skill sets, different gifts, different abilities. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for the team that God has given us to minister here at Hillcrest. Aren't you? We've already bragged on them about how they function and operate this summer. Didn't miss a lick. Not a thing to worry about. We just got great people. And that's intentional because we pray, we seek good people, the best people, we call them, we give them the vision, then we turn them loose to do their jobs, which they do with skill and with love for Jesus and affection for the people of God. And not only that, never forget, even beyond the people that we call the staff at Hillcrest, the ministry team at Hillcrest. The bottom line is we all part of the ministry team at Hillcrest. And so should it be in every New Testament church, said it a thousand times, every member is a minister at Hillcrest 
every member is a missionary at Hillcrest. You've got to get beyond this uh, tendency to professionally designate those who are specially called to ministry and excluding yourself from that because the bottom line is if you know Jesus, you've been called into the ministry. We've all been called to make disciples of all nations. We've all been called to share our faith. And so the church's mission, I'm telling you, last week we baptized 64 people last Sunday at hillcrestchurch.com. Unbelievable. 64 people. And if I had a dollar for every time somebody said, oh, you know that person that you baptized or this person's getting ready to go in the water, this is so-and-so's, whatever the relative was or friend, this is so, they've been working on them for years. And today they've made a decision. And you know what I want to do? I know Baptists can't do it. I want to do a happy dance when that happens. I'd have to surrender my ministry credentials if I did that though. I just want to do a happy dance because that's the way it's supposed to happen. Every member serving, every member in ministry, every member seeing themselves a missionary in a lost and dying world because Pensacola is lost. Pensacola is lost and becoming more lost with each passing year. So we're all missionaries sent on purpose. Paul and Timothy, I love that. Paul goes out of his way to identify his partner in ministry, a partner that he could not be successful without. Y'all still with me? Say amen. I thought this was gonna be a short sermon. I could go on another 30 minutes, but I won't because we gotta take the Lord's Supper this morning. The final thing I want you to notice is that Paul identifies his readers, his audience, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, two very important things bound up in that one little statement. Namely, he identifies a couple of important things about his readers. One, where they were, and two, who they were. First, the where question, where were they? They were the people of God at Colossae, right? Living in a specific place as part of a local church geographically in a place where you could get a map out. They probably wouldn't have been able to do that like we could here, but I can open up a map, show you where Colossae was and put a push pin in it. And that's where those people were who are identified by the people of God, living, breathing people who gathered together to worship together, take communion together, baptize together, strategize together, reach their community together. It's about 100 miles from Ephesus, Colossae is. Modern-day Turkey, it was known as Asia Minor back then, but it's modern-day Turkey. Most of the seven churches that you read about in Revelation 2 and 3, Laodicea, Thyatira, Pergamum, Philadelphia, all of those churches are in Asia Minor, southern Turkey today. And that's where Colossae was. Now, you go there today, and it's just a little bump in the road with just a handful of ancient ruins. You sneeze, you'll miss it. But it wasn't like that in Paul's day. It was an important commercial center right on a major trade route, right at the axis of a major trade route. And so it was hustling, bustling city. 
And Philemon and probably Epaphras were making money there as merchants or business people. But more important than the place were the people, right? Paul addresses to the letter to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Notice that. In fact, circle the phrase in Christ. More important than identifying these people as people at Colossae was identifying them as people in Christ. Their physical location on a map was not the most important thing about them. Their spiritual location was the most important thing about them. They were at Colossae, but more important than that, they were in Christ. That little phrase, in Christ, is going to be all over the book of Colossians. It's 33 times throughout the New Testament, every one of them, in something that the Apostle Paul wrote. I mean, this is his, maybe his biggest contribution is this concept of the believer being in Christ. Oneness with Christ, unity with Christ, union with Christ. More than one person has described the letter of the Colossians as the most Christ-centered book in the Bible. And you're going to see that as we go through particularly the first two chapters. Because in one of the most famous and one of the most important passages in the whole New Testament, Paul will say, all of us as believers possess this incredible thing called Christian hope. And what is the source of our hope? And he'll identify it, Christ in you the hope of glory. And that's just a powerful statement because as much as anything, who we are in Christ signifies something much more important than where we are. It identifies who we are as the people of God. The most important thing about you is not that you're a citizen of Pensacola or that you're a citizen of Milton or that you're a citizen of Pace or that you're a citizen of Molino or that you're a resident of Florida. That may be important to you. The most important thing about you is not even that you're an American citizen. The most important thing about you is because of your relationship with Christ, you are a citizen of the kingdom of Christ himself. That's the number one identifying mark about you as a person now this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Where is my residency? It's in the kingdom of Christ. I preached a funeral yesterday and we made that very clear that our residence is not on earth. We sometimes are so bound up in the world and in the earth. We're tied too closely to it, truth be told. So much so that when we think about living it, we begin to, leaving it, we begin to weep. This is not our home. Man, we're just pilgrims passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, or at least we should. I know some Christians aren't e eager for heaven at all, and I'm thinking, why not? As a believer, you ought not just look for heaven. You ought to long for heaven because you are in Christ. Mark it down. I'm just saying, if you want to know whether or not you're part of God's church, the question is not, am I on the roll? The question is, am I in Christ? Now, you can be on a church roll and be lost as a goose in a snowstorm. Being on a church roll never saved anybody, and I'm a huge champion of the local church. I'm a local church man. But there is no church. You can have church membership in the local church and not be a part of God's church. 
Hell will be populated with church members, which is a tragedy. Now, the only way you can be a part of God's church is if you're one with Jesus Christ by faith. Trusting Jesus to save you, Christ has moved into your life. You have moved into the life of Christ. This is why Paul calls them saints, because they've been made holy. That's what the word saint means. Not some super exalted person who's done super great things in the kingdom so that they've had an award bestowed upon them. Kind of like a British citizen receiving the order of the garter, one of the greatest Brits of all time, and they give them the chain and the patch and the, and, and the medal and all of that. No, that's not what a saint is. A saint is any person born again by faith in Jesus Christ. The word means to consecrate, to make holy. And that's what, you can't do that for yourself. That's what Christ has done for you. The moment that you and I are saved, we become one with Christ, in Christ, Christ in us, and that righteousizes us as believers. I think I just made up a word. It righteousizes the believer, sanctifies them. And you need help becoming righteous. And unless you are righteous, you got no chance with a relationship with God because he's like totally holy. So thank God for Jesus. Because when he moves in, he gives us the necessary righteousness to stand in the presence of God now and forever, part of the family of God. And that's why Paul says, I am writing to the saints in Christ at Colossae. And the question is today about you. Have you felt and experienced the call of Christ to himself? God's not going to call anybody today to be an apostle. But I believe God is going to call some people today or beginning today to himself. He's going to call you to become a a saint, to become a part of God's family. And there's something that happens to you when you are in Christ because that connects you to every other believer who is also in Christ. Paul and the Colossians were vitally connected not only to Christ but to one another. And think about it. If they were in Christ and Paul was in Christ and Christ resided in them, and Christ resided in Paul, then somehow they had to be connected to one another. And that's why he not only calls them saints, what else does he call them? Brothers and sisters. Don't forget the sistren. Because the term is an inclusive term. In Christ, Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. And so he identifies his readers. He does it in both a geographic and a spiritual way. This God-called apostle working together with a fellow servant named Timothy is writing to saints, fellow believers, holy and faithful brothers and sisters who are at Colossae in Jesus Christ. And that's just remarkable because remember, Paul had never been there. He'd never met any of them. 
But boy, he sure heard about them. They had a reputation that extended beyond their community. Don't you want that for your church? I'm telling you, I want people talking about Hillcrest, not because of how great we are, but what a great God we have. But what a marvelous thing to have people come up to you when I'm introduced to people, oh, this is my pastor over at Hillcrest. You're the pastor at Hillcrest? Man, I know so many great people down there. Thank you for what you're doing in the community. Thank you for the blessing that you are here. Thank you for the blessing that you've been there. What a great thing to know that word has come to people about our stand for the gospel and our ministry of the gospel. You may not be called to be an apostle, but you are called to belong to Jesus. God wants to save you. He wants you to be one of his children. And for those of you that are already saved, God has called you to be holy. Amen. God has called you to serve him. God has called you to serve one another. God has called you to grow as a disciple and to invest your life to disciple others. God has called all of us to be followers of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted him to save you, if you listen down deep, You'll hear the voice of God and you'll feel the compulsion of the Spirit of God. And most importantly, as you do, you need to say yes and follow Jesus, whatever the cost. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen.